Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachari Ravin, daf Lamed Aleph, page 31. Now, our daf today opens up with a really unusual case, or at least it struck me as an unusual case, where it says specifically, we're talking about a Kohen. The case is an Eruv for a Kohen. Now, the Kohen is Tahor, and he can eat Truma, but the question is, what happens if that truma were to be eaten on a, in a cemetery on a gravestone, on a grave site? Which then, right, the grave site is a site of tuma, impurity, and would render the truma itself impure, which would then, of course, be a problem for him to be eating it as a case of Eruv. So I'm going to read the text uh, straight up. This is the name of Rabbi Huda. Rabbi Huda's name appears on the previous daf, but that's who's talking here. So again, he's going to make an Erev. The Kohen is going to make an Erev on pure Truma food. Um, he's pure. The Truma is pure, but it's on a grave. So first of all, it's interesting to me that this language switches from Hebrew to Aramaic right there, just in that little bit. But he says, how does he go? How is this going to work? Besida Teva Ubamigdal. We saw this yesterday as well, right? If he shows up in a carriage or in a crate or in a cupboard, right? And so somehow he's been brought out to the cemetery and he's just in the air, right? But then what's going to happen is if he ends up on the actual ground. Isn't it the case that once that Eruv is put directly on the grave, then the tuma itself, then the truma itself becomes tameh, right? Is not a problem. So here's the answer, right? We talked about this a long time ago. A lot of our truma, a lot of our tuma and tahara discussion took place in Masach Shabbat, where we discussed the fact that for a uh, for produce to become tameh, it has to first undergo a process through which it achieves the ability to be rendered impure. And specifically, we talked about the item has to become wet with one of the seven mashkim, one of the seven liquids that are considered the liquids that will make something available, um, fit to become tame. So for example, let's say you have, I don't know, berries and now you've washed them, you've washed them in water and that's called hukshara. They have become prepared that then if they were to come in contact with tuma, they would be rendered impure. So in this case, Right, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about truma that itself was not yet susceptible to the tuma to begin with because it had not come in contact with the liquid, or perhaps it was It was kneaded together with fruit juice to begin with, and since fruit juice is not one of the liquids that would render the food susceptible to tuma, then then you're okay, right? Meaning then the kohen on this grave is as long as he can somehow stay in that box or that cupboard or whatever and keep himself pure, then he doesn't have to worry about the food itself becoming rendered rendered impure or susceptible to becoming rendered impure. Um, okay. So the question then is, the Gemara goes on, right? He says, you know, how can he bring it from where he is? How can he eat it? Like, te technically, he needs to be using wooden utensils, and they have to be flat. They can't have any shape of being a clee, right? A clee is a utensil that has the capacity to become tame, right? And the whole point is that he has to, all of these terms are, all of the conditions here are established to make sure that our Kohen, 
himself is not impure, his food does not become impure, the utensils with which he uses to eat it do not become impure, and the whole thing can work as long as he keeps that status of purity, you know, as he grows. Um, and then, of course, this is a problem of how can he maneuver himself while he's somehow on the top of his grave. And so this is what the Gemara is talking about here. Now, what I want to do is jump a, just a drop to the a few lines down. Um, I just before you go to that, you know, th- as much as I've been saying this whole time, that's what interesting about a Reuven is it's so practical. Here was a great example of where the Gemara tries to push a limit, right? Where it tries to see, like, can we really come up with this one in a million case of, like, how the Kohen could have his Arab on a grave and still eat it, and it would be totally fine. You are so right. Because he's doing gymnastics here, right? And he has to make sure, like, right. He has to have the right Kalim with him. And what are the odds of that? And he has to make, he has to know that he's landing on a grave to make sure that he you know, twists and turns himself not to, yes, everything you said. It's really, this is an unlikely happenstance. Right, but I think it teaches us a lot about Tumantara, right? The idea that food has to be huchshar, right? That it has to, it's not just that food becomes tame, you know, it, it has to, in a way, be ready to become tame, right? That a wooden clee is not really, is not susceptible to Tuma. So when you read this piece, just keep in mind, you're actually learning a lot about Tumantara as well. Right, and also I would say that you know, I might have thought that it's a given, right? That if there's Tuma around, then the guy, then the Kohen is going to become Tame. Or that the Truma itself, like how can it be prevented from becoming Tame? And the answer is, no, there are ways. Meaning it might take gymnastics and it might take very careful attention to all of these details. But it is not a given that one who is Tahor, who is pure, will automatically become Tame the second they, you know, are near in proximity to Tuma. Um, exactly. Yeah, now jump down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, okay. So the Gemara goes on to say as follows. From the, this statement of Rabbi Yehuda, right, that we've just discussed, there's, we can draw an inference. What's the infer- inference? Right. So what happens? Does Rabbi Yehuda hold? The Gemara says, Rabbi Yehuda must hold that it is permitted to use items that the that you're not allowed to get benefit from them and you can use them even to get benefit from meaning you can use them in a in a way that will give you benefit down the road even if you're not getting benefit directly from these items so for example he says or the Gemara explains this to say Rabbi Yehuda held to begin with that the mitzvot were not given for hana'a for benefit right what does that mean that when you fulfill a mitzvah what you're doing is fulfilling a mitzvah. You're not doing it for the sake of the benefit. And maybe what we're talking about when we're talking about an Arab, where you know you fundamentally acquire that place, right? You acquire the the Rishuri Yachid and you're or you're expanding your domain, right? And you might think that that's all for your own benefit. And the answer is no. When you establish any of these Arabs, whether it's an Arab Khatir or in this case an Arab Tchumin, right? You're just doing it for the sake of the mitzvah to establish yourself, to be able to move from here to there, you're not doing it to get more property, right? That's not how this works. And and the claim that mitzvot are not given for benefit gives me pause that we need to stop and consider the fact that maybe somebody thought that the mitzvot were there, you know, for our benefit, that we're going to 
do well to keep the mitzvot, right? And I think we do think that we do well to keep the mitzvot, right? But it's not for the sake of our ha'ana, for the sake of our benefit. The Gemara continues, what is Rava saying? This is again a later generation. The, the mitzvot were not given for the sake of benefit. So this is, let's say that that's in accordance with this view. So there's a machloket tanaim, which Rava, again, Rava is an Amora. Rava says that question of whether the mitzvot are there for our benefit is in fact the machloket of the tanaim. And what does he say? Amar lach Rava, is vir lahu de'ein ma'arvin ele ledevar mitzvah, dekulei alma mitzvot lav lehenot nidhu. So Rav says, one second, nobody thinks that the mitzvot were given for the sake of benefit, right? But if you hold that you can make an Eruv only for the sake of the mitzvah, right, then you would have to say that the Eruv, of course, could be placed on a grave or whatever because it's not about benefit, right? If you end up not able to have that Eruv, right, because it's been rendered impure, for example, then you would still end up you know, aiming for the mitzvah and it's not about the person's benefit. But so then the question then is what happens when you have this machloket? What's what, or rather the Gemara is going to explain what is the machloket between Rabbi Yehuda and the rest of the sages? Namely, here, what does it say? Um, what did they disagree about? Marsavar ein marvin elalidvar mitzvah. So the opinion is that one can, you can establish an Eruv only for the sake of a mitzvah, meaning not only are you not doing it for the sake of benefit, but you are only able to do it for the sake of a mitzvah. Um, and then the rationale of, you know, is that since mitzvah are not going to be something that is forbidden, then you can use the, then you can use that cemetery area to, to make your Eruv, right? Because, because a mitzvah can never be something that is a forbidden benefit. And then Chazal, the rest of the sages say um, that you could use it, you can make an Eruv, even for something that is a Rashut. A Rashut is something that is optional. So it's, again, it's not for the sake of the person's benefit, but it's it could be for a mitzvah, but it's not an obligation. It's something that's optional. So what that means is that when you make, when you extend your Shabbat, your residence or your travelability, right, on Shabbat, and you do it as this strange, very strange cases on the sake on the on the grave in a cemetery, and you do it with an eruv, and you're doing it for the sake of a reshut. You're doing it for something that is optional. Um, in that case, perhaps that is in fact a forbidden benefit, right, because you're on in a cemetery. In which case. Perhaps that would be prohibited, which is not Rabbi Huda's position, right? But it might be, in fact, the position of the rest of Chazal. Um, I feel like I've gotten turned around here in this example. So let me just try one more time just to make sense of it. Um, basically, there's a machlok, according to this later generation, Rava, Rava says that there's a machlok between Rabbi Huda and, and the rest of the Chachamim about whether when you come to do mitzvot in general, or in Eruv in particular, you're doing it for the sake of a mitzvah and not for the sake of the person's own enjoyment, right? And so the question of whether then you can use this Erev in the case of something that is optional, right, comes to have a real impact on whether you're allowed to do it or not, right, when there's something, when there's another force at play, like, for example, the fact that you have, that the situation is on a cemetery, on a grave in a cemetery to begin with, which means that 
the question of benefit, meaning can the Kohen get any benefit from this item, um, it comes into play. And the answer is, according to Rabbi Yehuda, where you're only doing it for mitzvah, you can. And according to Chachamim, where the position is that you're, you could do it for optional, but then you're also going to be knocked down from being able to do it for optional when it comes to the person's own benefit. I'm still not sure I've said that as well as I'd like to, but hopefully that becomes at least clear enough for you to understand, for all of you to understand why I find this case to be just so interesting and also the implications of why we do mitzvot, right, to be to be much more far-reaching. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's an interesting comment here, you know, on the page and sort of recognizing like that, this, particularly this case of the coin with the, with the uh, cemetery, that I guess there sort of could be like an added benefit to him. And so we want to say like, you, you really don't get to benefit from mitzvot. Like we're just doing mitzvot in order to do them. Um, I, I'm not sure we can totally explore this obviously on the podcast today, but it certainly was a concept uh, that I think requires, you know, some pause and some discussion. I think the one thing I would note is even if our motivation is not ever supposed to be for the sake of our personal benefit, I think we have to be honest and acknowledge that there are plenty of mitzvot that we also, you know, do derive enjoyment from, do derive benefit from, whether it's um, our ideal or as, you know, collateral benefit, it, it still happens. And I don't think that the Gemara is saying otherwise. I think it's talking about motivation more than results. Right. I would agree with that. And I think it causes us, like, we try to assign meaning sometimes to mitzvot where we say, like, it does this for us spiritually. It does that for us spiritually. The read of this Gemara is like, no, you're doing a mitzvah just to do the mitzvah. All of that other stuff sort of should just really be put aside. Right. Right. All right, I'm going to jump down actually uh, to the second mission that's on the page. So there's another mission that goes through, again, a category of foods that one cannot use to make an Arab. And basically those are foods that either something hasn't been done to them yet, so they're not really allowed to be eaten, but we're not, we're not going to go through that mission. I'm going to go through uh, the second one um, that's on that page, which really gets into a very interesting topic of a shaliach, right? Of doing, of sending, I guess, an emissary or another person uh, to do a mitzvah on your behalf or to complete something on your behalf. Uh, and the mission reads as follows. So if somebody sends an Arab in the hands of a cheresh, a shota, or a katan, right? Somebody who is a deaf mute, uh, somebody who maybe does not have normal intelligence um, or is, you know, intellectually disabled, or a katan, and we've gone through these terms before, masachat brachot, and have had a full discussion about these halachic categorizations. Uh, so I would refer you there. I don't remember what daf it is. Um, or somebody who doesn't agree about Erev. Uh, the Gemara will explain later on what that is, but I think it's interesting to see that there must have been, uh, the Gemara gives a very specific definition of this and saying that it's a Samaritan, somebody who doesn't believe basically in Torah Sheba Alpeh, right? Wouldn't believe in what Chazal have to say. Um, I don't think that's the shot read of the Mishnah. And I think it's interesting to see that there must have been a category of person who sort of just didn't hold by the concept of Erev at all. Um, it's not an Erev. So these are categories of people who either because of their uh, capacity to really fill a mitzvah or because they don't believe that the principle of Erev even exists, 
they cannot complete the mitzvah, they cannot complete an Erev on behalf of you as a shaliach. So what that would mean is, is that you couldn't give them the food for either of the Erev Chatserot or the Erev Tuchumim. Again, they'll get into more discussion, like Amar, what category we're talking about, and say, here's the food I need for the Erev, place it over there, and then your Erev is done. But if you did tell another person, you know, to, to receive that food at that, at a, you know, and bring it to that specific location and put it down at that spot, we would consider it, uh, you know, a valid Erev. And so the question is, are they saying here that of any of those, you know, for anybody else, right, any other shaliach, right, then we would still say that it's an Erev. So the Gemara goes on and says, katan lo, right, why can't a katan, you know, make an Erev? Didn't Rav Huna say, katan gova eta Erev, right? A katan can collect the food for an Erev. Lo kasha, this isn't a difficulty, Right. So here the Gemara is going to make a distinction here and say that one has to do with uh, where it says that we our Mishnah, where it says that a Katan is not allowed to do um, an Erev. This is talking about the um, laws of Erev Tuchumim, right, which seem to be more strict. OK. Um, and again, remember, because it's, it's making a new residence. So it, it, it's a little bit more complicated than what's involved here. But here, where Rav Huna says, no, a katan can, here we're talking about the Erev Chatzera, right? Um, because really, there, it's just about placing food for a space that already exists, and now you're just designating the whole space as a Rishus HaYachid, right? But for the Erev Tuchumim, you're really transforming space. You're extending the actual boundaries. So maybe one is more complicated than the other, so we allow a katan to do one, but not the other. Obiyad Mishayinu Modeva Erev, Okay. So I mentioned this before, okay, or somebody who doesn't believe in Erev. Man, Amarachista, Kutai, right? So who does this refer to? A Kuti, a Kutai, right? Which was a Samaritan. These were people who did not believe in Dibrei Chachamim. Himanu, right? So now they go to the next part of this Mishnah, right? But if he told somebody to receive it from him, this is a good Erev. Right? So what if we, maybe we're concerned that when you give the shaliach the food, right, maybe they didn't fulfill it. Maybe they didn't finish and they didn't take the, the food for the Arab and put it where they were supposed to put it. So Rav Chista would say, right, that, um, and this was referring to a different case of Rav Chista, but it's a case where the person who's appointing the shaliach who gives the food stands and watches. So here too with an Erev, we're saying you give the shaliach the food and you watch them. You make sure that it actually, you know, that it reached the place that it was supposed to reach. So now the Gemara is going to go on and say, right, but maybe we should be, con- right? So uh, if we're not concerned, like if we're, uh, you know, how would you explain this then? Let us not be, let us be concerned that perhaps, right, this other person, okay, will not take the Arab. In other words, here the case is as follows, okay, is that let's say one of the previous categories that we had, right, of the Cherish, the Katan, you know, uh, or the Shota, they have the Arab. And now what we're worried is, is they're going to be like the in-between. We say to them, give the Arab to that person and they'll set the Arab down, right? And so maybe we're going to say maybe they would not take the Arab, they wouldn't take the food from those three categories because they know those are people who can't actually make the Arab. Kids, I'm a Rav Yichiel, right? Rav Yichiel says, 
So the Gemara here answers by making, quoting a statement of Rav Yechiel, which is basically that we have a chazaka of a shaliach, which means the following. Whenever we use a shaliach, the assumption is what? The shaliach is going to fulfill what it is that you sent the shaliach to do here. So here also, we just assume the same thing. Once you've given it or you've told this person, I want you to fulfill, you know, making this error for me, we assume that this person has actually uh, has actually just done it. Um, and then the Gemara goes on, I'm not going to read it, but gets into an interesting discussion uh, looking at these, you know, statement of Rav Chis and Rav Chil, where it basically says like, and this is why you couldn't have an animal do it, right? Like, in other words, could you give your AOF to an elephant, right? Put the food on top of an elephant or give it to a monkey and have them set it down, right? And basically the answer is no, it's not going to be actually be a valid, um, it won't be a valid Arab, right? But the question is, if you watch the animal, right, like according to Rochista, right, that, you know, Omed Veroehu, then would it be allowed? And the answer is maybe it would be because we will still use this presumption of Chazaka Shaliach Osechlichuto, right? That we're just going to have this assumption once you've appointed the Shaliach that it's going to get done. I think this is a very important halachic consideration, right? We're not obligated once we've appointed somebody to do something for us to sort of make sure that for sure it got done. The assumption is if you appointed a shaliach, they're going to finish it up for you. I think that's a really important point. I think this idea, we're going to see it, you know, we're going to see it come up again and again down the road. But the idea that the person is, the shaliach takes your place, right? And so your job is done. Uh, you know, like you've, you've handed it off and now you're good. Um, but I think in this case, it's really interesting, the idea that the Eruv could be done by a shaliach. Right. And I think we're going to see, right. And it's an interesting, um, you know, it, it almost lets the person off the hook. Like just saying you appointed, we assume this person will fulfill it for you and we're done. It doesn't seem like that's what the halacha should be, right? Especially like, once we talk about you have to eat it, right? It has to, you don't have, well, you don't have to eat it. Like to eat it. it access, be, but. Right. You have to have access to eat it, but, but then are you not even there? Like, I, I find it really interesting. Um, you yeah, know, it, it's, it's interesting, but I think we'll see, you know, obviously we're really just at the beginning of our DAF, <laughs> of, of DAF Yomi. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where this concept comes up again. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Um, come talk to us on our Facebook page. Tell us how you relate to the benefit of mitzvah, to the, the possibility of having emissaries to do our mitzvah, and so on, on our Facebook page. Uh, thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hudson website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.